Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and this is your February AJT podcast, AJT Highlights um, podcast uh, for February 2021. I'd like to welcome everyone. And today, as always, I have Roz Manon uh, joining me, and we have also one of our editorial fellows who had been with us before, Melissa Swee, who's in at, at Iowa, and both of them are under snow right now, and we are to be under snow soon in Chicago. Welcome, everybody. As always, uh, I'll go through the the table of contents for this month's AJT. It's kind of an interesting collection of articles uh, that are the editor's choice. And um, so just to go down one by one, and this will be the order that we do these in. So Melissa will do um, two from Al Adra's group, both consensus expert opinions, statements. The first is pre-transplant solid organ malignancy and organ transplant candidacy. And the second one is on pre-existing melanoma and hematologic malignancies, prognosis and timing to solid organ transplantation. So two important consensus papers on the issue of pre-transplant malignancy and considering considerations for uh, organ transplant candidacy. Then Roz will do a article um, entitled Nomenclature for Kidney Function and Kidney and Disease, Executive Summary and Glossary from a Kidney Disease Improving Global, Global Outcomes KDIGO Consensus Conference. That'll be interesting. And then um, by Levy et al., there's an editorial attached. And then I'll finish with two uh, case series, the first by Krishna Murthy uh, on CAR T cell therapy and solid organ transplant recipients with refractory PTLD. And uh, the second one by Dollar et al. is on HHV-8 and development of Kaposi sarcoma among six recipients of organs from donors with high-risk sexual and substance use behavior. A nice uh, uh, variety today. So, Melissa, why don't you um, kick us off with, with your papers? And thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Levitsky and Dr. Bannon, for having me back on the AJT podcast. Um, I'm excited to discuss the article, Pre-Transplant Solid Organ Malignancy and Organ Transplant Candidacy, a Consensus Expert Opinion Statement. I'm incredibly happy to talk about this because it means that more people are surviving and beating cancer and now have opportunities to receive solid organ transplants. In fact, there's been a huge jump in solid organ transplant recipients who previously had cancer. In 1994, there were fewer than one in 100 kidney transplant recipients with prior malignancy. In 2016, that number jumped up to one in 16. Part of this change is from newer information. Uh, the older recommendations were based on the Israel Penn International Transplant Tumor Registry. This registry reported a 21% overall risk of cancer recurrence after solid organ transplantation. That's one in five would have a recurrence of their cancer but newer population-based studies have shown lower cancer rates of recurrence. Still, there's a lack of clinical evidence and guidelines for the safety of transplant following a pre-transplant malignancy. So to help fill this gap in knowledge, the American Society of Transplantation held a consensus workshop late in September 2019 in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. The workshop had over 30 participants, including transplant physicians like surgeons, medical specialists, and anesthesiologists, experts in surgical and medical oncology, and cancer epidemiologists. The consensus workshop included three experts each in the field of breast, colorectal, urological, gynecological, and lung cancer. They presented summaries of these diseases and how they related to transplantation. 
the current literature in both transplant and non-transplant populations were reviewed. So using a modified Delphi method and using a five-year cancer survival rate of near 80% as a benchmark, this consensus document was created. So to those of you who may not know what a Delphi method is, it's a really complex way of deriving consensus in a group with multiple rounds of voting and discussion. Think about in college when you and your roommates were ordering pizza the night before your finals and just couldn't figure out what toppings everyone could agree on. There's give and take and discussion and voting, and finally, the pizza's ordered with something for everyone. It's a messy process, but it can yield some good recommendations, especially since most of these recommendations are extrapolations from outcomes for cancer patients in the general population. This also reminds me, these recommendations aren't meant to be guidelines, but rather statements for the purposes of developing and building consensus. The consensus document breaks down the recommendations based on whether there is a history of breast, colorectal, urological, gynecological, or lung cancer. Uh, there's a lot of information and recommendations packed into this paper, and so I encourage all our listeners to review the consensus statement and the easy-to-read tables for a more in-depth review. Keep in mind that there is a lot of variety with each type of cancer, and the patient's oncologist should be involved throughout the entire decision-making process. Before we delve into these, I suggest that we do a quick drinking game. Pick a non-alcoholic drink of your choice in honor of our liver transplant colleagues and get ready to take a drink whenever you hear the word tricky because this topic is, need I say it, very tricky. So let's get started with breast cancer. The consensus recommendation is that women with low risk disease such as ductal carcinoma in situ and stage one breast cancer should be considered transplant candidates after completion of all standard treatments with no additional waiting time. Endocrine therapy can be continued and should not affect the decision on when to transplant. It gets trickier with higher risk disease and the time to consider transplantation after a disease-free interval following completion of all treatment. Women with stage two disease, for example, have a five-year survival of about 80%. For them, think about transplant after about one to two years. Likewise, for women with stage three disease, most of whom have recurrences within three years, consider listing after three to five years. Unfortunately, because inflammatory breast cancer and metastatic disease have poorer prognoses, these individuals are generally not considered transplant candidates. Colorectal cancel recommendations are a little trickier because there's a few more variables like BRAF mutation status, number of lymph nodes examined, presence of bowel obstruction or tumor perforation, and type of histology, to name a few. Overall, the recommendation is to wait one to two years for low-risk disease and three to five years for high-risk disease before considering transplantation. However, there are important caveats. First, it doesn't really apply for those who have not undergone surgical resection, so case-by-case -case discussions would be needed. Secondly, for those having unresectable colorectal metastases limited solely to the liver, liver transplantation may actually be curative. And thirdly, for invasive anal cancers related to human papillomavirus, HPV, uh, the recommendation is to delay consideration for transplant beyond five years because immune suppression may increase the risk of disease prognosis or pro progression. Uh, so we're almost at the halfway point now. We've done breast and colon cancer and we're moving on to prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is even trickier. Prostate cancer is very common in men. According to autopsy studies, most men in their 70s have evidence of prostate cancer. Thankfully, despite that high number, only about one in 30 U.S. men die from prostate cancer. Also, thankfully, we have pretty good predictive tools that can help predict cancer-specific death, thanks to our friends at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Their prediction tools, which are used in the paper, can be found at nomograms.org. If the risk is less than 10%, then the recommendation is for no additional wait time before transplantation. 
For castration-sensitive metastatic disease, which has higher risk, individuals should be stable for two years prior to consideration of a transplant. And for castration-resistant disease, transplantation is, is mostly off the table. For renal cell cancer, no wait time prior to transplantation is recommended for stage T1A, which is for small renal masses since these are mostly low grade and risk of metastases at presentation is less than 2%. Stage T1B to T2 varies from no wait time to two year wait time depending on other variables. And recommendations for higher stages are to wait a minimum of two years and then reassess and see how they're doing. Metastatic disease, sarcomatoid and rhabdoid histologic features or collecting duct or medullary renal cell carcinoma are features that may dissuade listing for transplant. In contrast, bladder cancer has a high rate of recurrence but is usually localized with a slow rate of progression. The recommended time interval to transplant ranges between six months to two years, the exception being muscle invasive bladder cancer following chemoradiation. These patients may not be solid organ transplant candidates, but this of course should be evaluated on a case-to-case -case basis. Now that we've reviewed breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and urothelial cancers, let's shift our focus to gynecologic malignancies. Like with other cancers, those with a low risk of recurrence require no waiting period after completing primary treatment. Intermediate risk recommendation is waiting two to three years after completing treatment, and five years is recommended for high risk, including stage three endometrioid cancer of the uterus, stage two and three epithelial ovarian cancer, and stage two and three cervical cancer with squamous cell or adenocarcinoma. Those with a greater than 80% change of recurrence, which are mostly stage four cancers, are typically not a solid organ transplant candidate. Lastly, the consensus recommendations address non-small cell lung cancer, which is the leading cause of cancer-related mortality in the United States and makes this cancer even trickier than the others. Checkpoint inhibitors are often discontinued prior to transplant due to the risk of rejection, which can affect your cancer remission. And because the patient can have sustained radiologic findings, it makes it difficult to tell if they truly are in remission. Even with early stage non-small cell lung cancer, the recommendation is to wait at least three years prior to transplantation. Five years is recommended for stages 1B to 3A, and usually patients with stage 3B and higher are not candidates for solid organ transplantation. So those are the five cancers and the consensus recommendations for them. Breast cancer, colorectal cancer, urothelial cancers, gynecological cancers, and lung cancer. Remember that there are a lot of subtleties when it comes to cancer treatment and management, let alone transplant. However, with these consensus recommendations, clinicians can have some authority in their corner when negotiating a space of medicine that still needs a little bit more solid evidence base. So I hope you enjoyed the previous part of the podcast because you're going to have some deja vu with this next part where we talk about uh, the next article, pre-existing melanoma and hematological malignancies, prognosis, and timing to solid organ transplantation, a consensus expert opinion statement, um, also by Dr. David Aladra et al. Like we talked about in 2019, a bunch of really, really smart people came together in Dallas-Fort Worth to talk about cancers and solid organ transplantation. They not only talked about the solid organ malignancies, but also hematologic malignancies and melanomas. Uh, the methodology for coming up with consensus recommendations was essentially identical. Uh, they used a Delphi technique to derive consensus through rounds and rounds of discussion and voting. Like with the last article, uh, there are wonderful tables breaking down the consensus statements, and I highly encourage our listeners to review these tables for more information. Uh, melanoma is particularly difficult. Uh, the good news is that there have been dramatic advances in both adjuvant therapy re for resected high-risk melanoma and systemic therapy for metastatic disease. 
the five-year overall survival rate is now greater than 50%. Checkpoint inhibitors are a major advancement in treating melanomas, but they also complicate things for transplantation. Uh, after all, can these medications be safely used after transplant, and how does that affect the organ function post-transplant? It's very much an open question. Another concern is that melanoma-specific mortality is three times higher in transplant recipients compared to non-transplant recipients, and de novo melanoma behaves aggressively in the setting of immunosuppression. Uh, recommendations are to wait one to four years for stage one to three B melanoma, depending on the stage in treatment. There was no consensus for higher stages, but the overall recommendation was to wait at least five years and work on a case-by-case -case basis with the oncologist. Uh, no wait time is needed for melanoma in situ. These wait times are in contrast to lymphoma, where the overall recommended wait time is two years following event-free survival. So no events that cause any issues uh, related to lymphoma. Monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis is a pre-malignant condition which precedes chronic lymphocytic leukemia. About 5 to 12% of patients over the age of 60 have it, and no wait time is recommended due to its very favorable prognosis. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia, even when untreated, has an 83% five-year survival. For that reason, the consensus statement is to wait two to three years following treatment. Multiple myeloma has improved prognosis with modern therapy as well, with median progression-free survival of 63 months, a little over five years, and an overall survival at 10 years of over 60%. Prognosis is also driven by genetics, with certain deletions carrying a worse prognosis. One other consideration in myeloma is lenalidomide, which is used for treatment, has been associated with renal allograft rejection. Over the past decade or so, five new agents have been approved for treatment of myeloma, and this has been game-changing. If the patient has had a stem cell transplantation as part of their treatment, a number of recent reports suggest that the patient may be okay to transplant after 6 to 12 months of remission. To consider light-chain amyloidosis, there are four recommendations for safe solid organ transplant. One, therapeutic response to therapy. Two, only one organ involved with amyloidosis. Three, does not fulfill criteria for symptomatic myeloma. And four, must be a candidate for a stem cell transplantation following solid organ transplantation should the need arise. Many patients have actually been managed with chemotherapy after heart transplant and have not needed a stem cell transplant. So, to all you listeners, I don't know how your centers deal with cancers and transplant. In reading this, I feel more confidence in transplantation following malignancy, uh, which is something I am still overall pretty squeamish about, especially since we live by the motto from Hippocrates to first do no harm. And I'm always concerned about cancer recurrence following immunosuppression. So, in conclusion, cancer is terrible, uh, yet transplants are possible, possible even if they are tricky, after cancer, and it is becoming more and more common. So to those who are playing the drinking game, I think that's about seven drinks, uh, but please feel free to take one more for good luck in the new year. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa, for that perspective. Thanks, <laughs> of course. Thanks. No, that was terrific. I, um, you know, I think this was a really monumental effort by this group that, I mean, this is the type of kind of expert opinion that, centers are going to start immediately, if not already, using to help uh, when these patients, you know, present with a history of malignancy and need use something to go off of. What's challenging, of course, as you mentioned, is that these are mainly statements and expert opinions rather than, you know, data-driven levels of evidence, which are obviously really hard to generate. Um, so, I don't know, how, how do you think this 
is this something that we should be, you know, using this as a guide or more of a Bible or uh, when we're, when we have patients who present with these specific malignancies, what are, what are your thoughts? I think these are very loose guidelines, uh, which the authors uh, discuss as well, where most of the data is derived from non-transplant uh, cancer patients. And so it's, it is still difficult to say what's going to happen in the setting of transplantation. As we get more knowledge and information in the future, I'm sure these will continue to change. The recommendations will be different. Uh, but I think they give some loose guidelines where the centers have some idea, but of course, case by case basis, continue to talk to the oncologist. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough because every <laughs> probably every one of these patients has a slightly different presentation or you know duration, and but at least this gives you some some frame framework to work with rather than just our perceived notions. This is a good or bad idea. Yeah. And I think that um, that's a good point, Josh. I think it um, allows you to go back to your own center and say, hey, here's these guidelines, a review, an opinion statement. And I also thought the editorial by Allison Hart and Eric Engels brings up several points, including the lack of data, of course, but, you know, weighing the risk and benefit of transplanting a patient who's responded to immunotherapy where you're jacking up so to speak, the immune response, yeah. and now you're suppressing it, So, which is the opposite of the CPI. Here you've already treated them, now you're coming back, and is that going to really destabilize them, or, or do you consider the waiting time for some of these transplants where you're waiting three to five years and you're attributing risk, a competing risk of death due to, or, or chronic kidney injury, accumulative mortality and morbidity. So. I thought that it, we needed this. We needed the conversation because the current so-called guidelines are really that, and people are using them and saying, no, we're not going to, you know, and it's been 10 to 12 years from that time, maybe longer, it might be two decades. It just seems like yesterday to me. So I, I appreciate, Melissa, you kind of delving into this. And um, uh, even though I have my non-alcohol uh, drink here with me, I didn't. I didn't play because I just was afraid I'd have to <laughs> leave you guys in the middle of the podcast. But but I, I think there'll be more to come. And I think already I can see centers starting to have the conversations about individual metric, you know, individual cases, whereas before it was sort of cut and dry. Prior cancer, no. You know, now they're sort of saying, oh, especially pro things like prostate, these long surviving tumors. Yeah. Or even melanoma, where it's that's that's a word that drives, you know, fear into me, but it doesn't look as drastic as it used to in the past. Great. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, Melissa. That was terrific to encourage everybody to go out and look at these and talk about them at your centers. Um, I think it could really advance care. All right, Roz. Hey. I, interesting I, uh, yeah. stuff. So thanks, uh, guys. Let me uh, head on. I might be a little bit longer than five minutes. I'll try not to be. But uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about a letter to the editor from Kay Digo, the um, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Leadership, led by Dr. Andrew Levy for this letter and an accompanying editorial co-authored by who else but me? No, seriously, I didn't pick this. The uh, editor-in-chief did. And again, I want to draw your attention to this very brief letter. So for those of you not in the kidney world, KDGO is a global not-for-profit organization that develops and implements uh, evidence-based uh, practice guidelines for kidney disease. And uh, it's a not-for-profit. It's 
self-funded. It has a governing body and it has uh, expert leaders in, that are uh, in nephrology, uh, kidney disease, that have been working on this initiative for a long time. And it has a beautiful website. Uh, on it uh, are many treatment uh, recommendations, the guidelines for acute kidney injury, for example, chronic kidney disease, diabetes management, hypertension management in, in chronic kidney disease. But importantly, they have three topics relevant to us. They have a, a living kidney donor guideline, a, a kidney transplant candidate guideline for candidate assessment, and a recipient management guideline. And again, they're structured sort of a way, a very classical way where you have the, the strength of evidence is graded as one or two, and then the quality of evidence is A through D. Now, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about this nomenclature consensus. Uh, this group met with uh, leading experts in the field studying kidney disease and kidney failure in June of 2019, and they created a standardized and refined what they call nomenclature uh, in the English language specifically to describe kidney function and disease specifically for scientific publications. And the full report is published in Kidney International in 2020. It's about 13 pages. And then there's an accompanying supplemental material, which is another additional 13 pages. And they actually submitted this information to other uh, kidney disease journals so that they could be potentially all in alignment, including uh, the AJT. There are five recommendations outlined in this very brief letter. One is to use kidney not renal or nephro when referring to disease or function. However, nephrology would not change. Two, to use the term kidney failure with or without symptoms or signs rather than end-stage kidney disease. To use the KDGO definition for acute kidney injury and acute kidney disease when referring or studying AKI. Four, to use the KDGO definition and classification of chronic kidney disease rather than other alternatives. And to use specific measures like albuminuria and estimated GFR of function uh, rather than descriptives like abnormal or reduced. And so uh, there's a manual of style that they submitted to you, the AMA manual of style as well. And, and, and the bottom line is journals are going to have to figure out how to implement these and adopt them, educate not only the editorial staff, but uh, the staff that create the page proofs and then disseminate it to those of us that are participating in, in, in this kind of research and also how to communicate this to patients. So uh, Dr. Steiner and I, and I want to give kudos to Bob Steiner at UCSD for really uh, driving home a number of points and how the American Journal of Transplantation uh, could implement this. And, he really points out that there are understandable difficulties in balancing being comprehensive, being practical, um, and giving precision, particularly when we're studying disease. And so I think that, you know, the use of anatomical terms like renal and getting that to be kidney makes sense. But um, I have to say, and Bob points out that when you use the KDGO CKD stages instead of five stages that we're used to, you know, of CKD. Now there are six stages with 18 substages. It's almost like BAMF for pathology. You're going to probably have to print the table out and put it in your coat pocket or at least have a screenshot on your phone. You know, acute kidney injury is an example where there's a rise in serum creatinine, but many of us see hemodynamic changes in patients all the time related to, say, nausea and vomiting and volume contraction, and is that really acute kidney injury, and can it really be considered that, and how do you study that, um, and do you group that into one thing? If we're going to go towards this, then proteinuria has four categories for proteinuria and six categories for albuminuria. You don't call it macro and micro. 
And I do think that the systematic implementation will be difficult for many of us, including someone like me that's been doing this for a good long time. I think the terms are new. Um, they may work for epidemiologic studies, but I'm not sure they're practical. So things like registries may or may not be granular enough to support some of these studies that are more better defined by multi-center evaluation. And then trying to make this sensible to patients um, is difficult. Are there transplant-specific implications? And we came up with a few. One is, is living donors, and, you know, living donors will be, you know, a, a CKD stage. And that language really talks about disease. And when, when a donor hears disease, it immediately talks about risk. And we don't want to deter living donation. So, you know, can we discuss this in a clinically relevant fashion rather than calling them chronic kidney disease? Another example that uh, we point out is the use of hyperfiltration and, you know, whether that's really kind of a GFR threshold and how that would relate to this nomenclature. And it's important that in this nomenclature system of KDGO, there's no adjustment for body size. So the formulas are really mils per minute, not mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And so I think that we have to be cautious if our programs are using specific threshold cutoffs for live donation that we're aware that we're in alignment with um, these two different definitions. And again, this is not specific for transplant. Things like the words transplant rejection will remain as transplant rejection, although, as you know, because of the definition of AKI, uh, transplant rejection will be considered part of AKI, but I don't think it was really considered. And so I think one thing that Bob pointed out to me and when, we, when writing this was that sometimes changing the words to make it less dissatisfying and scary, you know, oh, this is chronic kidney disease, that in the end, you know, disease may lead to failure, and failure is when the patient goes on dialysis. And so some of this is epidemiologic and scientific, and some is, is communicative as well. And again, I think we both agree and, and that this will be a challenge to implement, and we have actually not uh, we, we're doing lots of things with our new editor-in-chief, but this was not one of them yet as a priority, and I look forward to seeing how the kidney disease journals implement this moving forward. Yeah, Roz, it's it's interesting. I'm actually writing a grant right now, and had to, uh, one of the nephrologists I'm working with basically said I had to go through my entire grant and remove renal and replace it with kidney. And I said, well, what, what happens when you've got, hep do we now have hepato-kidney syndrome? <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, things that are just so much ingrained in our terminology. Certainly in South America or in Spanish-speaking countries, you know, nephrologia, I mean, it's all nephro, um, and they're not advocating calling us renalologists, like, you know, you get pulmonary critical care and you're going to call them pulmonologists, pulmonary, and so um, I digress, but I, I think... I, I kind of understand the, the method of the madness, but again, it's going to be a real retool because just looking at some of the criteria for CKD, I mean, I don't think of it as these sub-sub-segments, and is that necessary to do great research in kidney transplant or in hepato-renal acute kidney injury? I don't so know. So it sounds like it's really more for, for a consistency in manuscripts and research uh, and, than, and I think, than less so in clinical right. care. And I think when you're thinking about it in BAMP, I mean, there is a clinical component in terms of patients, but I think if you think of it as about the BAMP criteria, and I don't want to say they're the same because they're not, but you're trying to 
I think they want to align apples with apples so that when you are making these bold statements or doing treatment clinical trials that we're all measuring the right population or the same population and not, you know, it's not really what we're supposed to be doing. But I think the implications in uh, kidney transplant and again, weren't there are members of, of the transplant community that are involved in this, but are really were there more as nephrologists. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Well, let me uh, move on and we'll finish with the last two papers. So these last two are really two sort of constructive case series that bring up two issues in organ transplantation. One is on transmission of HHV-8 and the second is on refractory PTLD and um, some case scenarios that provide some instruction on how to approach these and treat these. So the first one is by um, Dollard et al. uh, entitled Donor-Derived Human Herpes Virus 8 and the Development of Kaposi Sarcoma Among Six Recipients of Organs from Donors with High-Risk Sexual and Substance Use Behavior. And so this is, I think, everyone who has a transmission of a specific uh, during a transplant. These are generally reported to the um, OPTN DTAC committee. And what happens is is uh, more significant cases are investigated by the Center for Disease Control. I sat on the DTAC committee and we'd always had a slew of cases that were a little more dramatic or had some public health significance. And so this paper, the, the first author of this paper, Sheila Dollard, is from the CDC, and these were um, cases that were submitted of HHV-8 transmission at um, centers in LA, Texas, Washington, Ohio, um, and actually uh, Melissa in Iowa. So what they report is uh, in this is six cases, six six donors who transmitted HHV-8 to 22 organ recipients. And they start off, we know that HHV-8 and resultant Kaposi sarcoma is more common to get this in terms of reactivation rather than donor transmission. But the reason that I think these cases were brought up is that we're seeing increasing high-risk donors, especially those using intravenous drugs or having sexual exposures and that we may be seeing more uh, HHV-8 transmission. And, uh, you know, just the the opiate epidemic has the increased risk donors have gone up from like 9% to nearly a quarter of our organ donor population. So this report was um, basically to highlight what can happen when you have an increased risk donor and that HHV-8 is certainly a possibility for transmission and causing Kaposi's sarcoma in the recipient. Just to go over some of the, I don't want to go over each one of the cases, but table one and two are show you the, um, the donor information, the six donors where um, they all had risk factors for substance abuse and sexual risks for HHV-8 infection. So uh, this is important that, you know, these are increased risk donors and all but one had HHV antibodies and two of them had DNA detected. And, and again, these were done at the CDC. These were not done by the OPOs. This is not a standard test to do. So this was done afterwards to determine if this was donor-derived or recipient-derived HHVA. Table two shows the um, recipients of from those donors. 
And you can see in that that those who developed Kaposi sarcoma, which was six of the, the 22, so not all of them developed KS or had problems, but six of them uh, developed it. Um, I think four of these were lung recipients. Um, so lung seems to be a particularly susceptible organ. And so they go through the presentations and um, unfortunately, most of the patients did not do well through developing uh, Kaposi sarcoma from HHV8 transmission. The lung recipients had you know, multiple pulmonary involvement and um, there's a kidney recipient who had uh, it had it present in the renal biopsy, which makes sense. This came from the donor. There's a liver recipient where it was in the lymph nodes. So um, kind of the summary is that, again, four of the six recipients died due to KS. So I think the summary from this is not that um, this is something you're going to see all the time, but just to highlight that because of the opioid epidemic, the the dramatic rise in uh, increased risk donors that uh, you, sh you should have sort of a higher index suspicion for HHV8 and Kaposi sarcoma in that setting. Um, unfortunately, there really isn't any monitoring done or, or, or testing that's done on the donors themselves. Um, I don't think it's a common enough infection to just start doing this. And there's actually no validated commercial serological kits for it. So you can't even do it right now if you're trying to screen a, a donor or recipient. This has to go through the um, CDC. But certainly, this is if we're starting to see more of this, this will probably get somehow in implemented into screening increased risk donors down the road. So I, I think this is a uh, kind of a word of caution um, in this clinical scenario. If you guys have any thoughts about that? So one thing I found interesting about this uh, was the induction agents uh, for most of the people who got uh, the, the HHV8 was uh, basiliximab, except for the kidney transplants. So I, I found that interesting. Yeah, and I, I think... This is one of those scenarios that um, they didn't find these until later when they presented and they went, so they went back and got the blood from the donor or from the OPO and detected this way past the fact. So I think if, if you knew this up front, well, I think you may not even use the donor or, or if you knew this shortly thereafter, you would probably want to, you know, reduce immunosuppression appropriately, but that's easier said than done. And again, there were, I guess, uh, six out of the 22. So 18 of them did not have any clinical consequence of it, but the ones who did had devastating consequences. Yeah, they were, they were terrible, terrible. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's one of those things where you think you sort of know everything about, you know, high risk or whatever we're calling them now, PHS risk donors. And, um, you know, this was a little, sh not so much shocking to me. I, it, it's, you know, having trained when HIV was terrible and you saw frequent tapices. And I think the last time I saw tapices in a, in a transplant patient was very, it's very, you know, has been uncommon. This must have just stood out as sort of a strike. Usually a Mediterranean recipient, some a recipient from the Mediterranean. I've seen a, a couple yeah. in my career. This, this is interesting because this is from donor transmission. I know. And, and just yeah. looking at the extent of disease, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. I, I, yeah. I, just, yeah, I mean, so podcasters, you got to go look at the pictures, pull over, get to a safe spot. No, I'm just kidding. When you get trans, take a look. Yeah. yeah. It's, 
yeah. really amazing and something to think about. Um, and certainly, potentially, the use of mTOR inhibitor, I guess, was discussed as well. Yeah, it's interesting, the lung, too, probably because it's just such a vascularized organ. And mm. and also, they're, they get highly immunosuppressed, maybe more so than other recipients that might mm. have been part of it. But um, anyway, let me finish with the CAR-T. Um, this one also, um, very interesting, but sort of unfortunate. And I commend the authors for for um, uh, submitting this for publication when it was kind of a negative report. Um, this came out of uh, WashU. They uh, talk about CAR T cell therapy, which we all know is kind of starting to really expand in terms of our, our armamentarium and treating all types of um, malignancies. And um, there is approval for CAR T cell therapy in ALL and also diffuse large B cell lymphoma. The idea here is um, you take T cells out of a patient, so they're autologous, and they're genetically modified to express chimeric surface antigen receptors. And the receptors allow the T cells to recognize and bind tumor antigens, um, like the CD19 uh, pan B cell marker. And so they're specifically targeting tumor antigens. And so essentially, this is kind of the first experience in organ transplant patients who developed lymphoma which may be a different sort of uh, disease or beast altogether than just general lymphoma. And, and, and that might be why these patients didn't do well. Um, they present three cases of, there was a, a kidney with a pancreas after kidney. There was a heart transplant patient. And then I think the final one was, a, was another kidney transplant, kidney transplant patient. Essentially, they uh, developed very late, um, I think the uh, years, it was like 10, 20, and 26 years, uh, EBV negative PTLD. So you, you start to wonder when you see these patients, is this related to their transplant or not? Because it's so far out, but um, you know, they're on immunosuppression. And these three cases failed uh, first in line therapy with chemotherapy, with mainly with rituximab, RCHOP, and salvage therapy, this rice uh, concoction. And so these were very desperate patients. Um, and they received, the three of them received CAR-T therapy. And it's actually interesting what happened is that um, the three of them apparently uh, died of both, with all three with the same condition, which is this um, cytokine release syndrome. And I had not heard of this before, but it's called ICANS, which is immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. Um, which was very severe in in these in these patients. Um, so it's an 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 immune reaction. You infuse the cells, and it basically causes an effector cell um, cytokine release and injury to the nervous system. And um, if you read the details here, they're just very high inflammatory markers. Very sick patients. Um, all three patients died uh, within a month or two or so. Um, actually, one of the patients was 115 days. Uh, remember, these were patients who were already on their last legs, unfortunately. But, you know, I think this is something that we're probably going to be seeing tried to be developed in organ transplantation. Sort of makes sense. You wonder about the balance of their underlying immunosuppression and maybe trying to not have this uh, cytokine release syndrome up front. It sort of reminds me of a checkpoint inhibitor a little bit of kind of the immune reaction. These seemed really severe, uh, almost like when we used to give OKT3 way back when. 
I, I certainly think there's a potential here. And I, I know that there's interest in developing CAR T cell therapy for tolerance, sort of CAR T regs. So there, there are some applications of transplant. These, this was disappointing only to the fact that these patients didn't do well and, and got very sick. But again, a hot topic. We'd like to see what happens with this. Um, maybe it could be used in more upfront, more targeted upfront. And maybe some type of immunoprotection applied to to help avoid this severe cytokine syndrome is what I what I gleaned from this report. But nevertheless, very interesting, unfortunate too. So again, not not something that I know a lot about. I know about the the CAR T regs and and being a potential you know novel therapy for for in treating in patients. But this was the first that I had seen in terms of of directed towards TTLD. I know that I, I want to say that I sort of heard about this as a potential treatment therapy, but I had not heard about the outcomes. And again, this looks like a, the group at WashU uh, reporting these, these cases, which were pretty devastating. Well, I don't know if I have anything brilliant here. I, I you know, you'd like yeah. to say, well, I know how to figure it out and they should have done this, but um, yeah. I, I no, did think say that, that too. They you say know, that in the report, they said there's, there's not enough data to really kind of guide what to do differently other than just sort of refining this approach. I'm sure that's going to dovetail on refining the approach in the general population first, because I'm sure they've seen this scenario. Um, and, and, I, I don't, and, and yeah. Josh, again, the ICANS is a specific like hyperreactivity that's yeah. associated with the infusion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it presents, it's presented in all these cases as basically they became sort of obtunded, um, sort of a brain. It's not just a, it's a cent CNS toxicity. CNS toxicity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Really kind of in pretty quickly after the infusion. All right. Well, those were, um, that's what we call a potpourri today. Um, but great stuff. Uh, Melissa, I want to thank you for participating. Roz, as always, and we'll continue. On to next month. We'll see you then. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 